Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. everybody, welcome to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Nick Leon. And I'm Nick Saberi. On the program today from CNN, Harry Enton's going to be joining us. He's a senior data reporter over there. Uh, Harry does a fantastic job with all of the polling. He's going to break down uh, all the numbers, what goes into polling. He's been doing this for ages, it feels like, formerly at 538, now at CNN. So super excited to talk to Harry just a bit. But before we get into that we're going to get into the news uh that's really been happening uh in the mainstream media for the last it feels like forever um at least the last two or three weeks um and what's happening in afghanistan but first i say hello to my partner in crime nick Savary. nick how are you sir i'm good man life is good we are we are now officially two weeks actually before actually no um i'm lost i'm losing track of time i am one week away from my first grader starting school pretty crazy we got the letter from school yeah we're still going to make a determination is she going to be virtual is she going to be on site we're honestly waiting to, to hear you know about mask mandates right um but yeah it's wild times man kids getting older but life is good how are you doing no i'm doing very well you know it's funny that you segue that because we do we do have in the coming weeks uh, an education expert uh not nick Savary. um we've got another one a better one um there you go but she, but she works obviously in the education space in terms of the digital part of this, right? Because a lot of people are trying to shift to working uh, virtual and that's applying for schools. And we've seen when the pandemic first started, a lot of schools getting hacked. We saw Miami-Dade schools get hacked by somebody from, from a virtual standpoint. So um, we're going to get into that in, in the coming weeks. So uh, pretty funny that you mentioned that, but I'm doing good. Everything is going good over here in, in New York City, but something that's not going good right now is the situation that's happening in Afghanistan. Um, take a listen to this. Well, right now what's happening in Afghanistan is that the Taliban have taken over the entire country. Basically the Afghan government, the Afghan national government, the government that we put in place uh, after we went into Afghanistan and removed the Taliban government uh, in the months after 9-11 has very quickly taken over the entire country. The Afghan national forces, the government forces just melted away, uh, didn't put up much resistance at all. The, the president of Afghanistan fled the country and uh, the Taliban are in charge everywhere. And now what we're doing is a what's called a non-combatant evacuation operation. Uh, the Taliban government has said they're going to let us evacuate all of our personnel. Uh, we've also got somewhere between 20 and 40,000 uh, Afghans Afghan nationals that worked with us that we want to get out of there as well because they are in harm's way. 
So that's basically what's going on is this massive evacuation operation, faster than we had planned. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're obviously going to be doing an episode uh, and really diving deep into not only the history of what's happened in Afghanistan, the U.S.'s involvement, uh, the Pakistanis government's involvement, um, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, everything in that region uh, with a, a war correspondent and a journalist over at Al Jazeera. So look forward to that in the coming weeks. But I wanted to touch upon it uh, at the beginning because it kind of feeds into today's topic about polling, right? And sometimes there's issues that strike chords with voters. We saw, you know, um, some recent polling around the Israel-Palestine issue and the way that struck chords with with voters. We've seen it with the crime issue that's happening now in some key cities. And we're going to get into that article in a second by by Rui Teixeira. But uh, Nick, Afghanistan and what's happening in Afghanistan, you heard uh, President Biden talking about the press conference that he gave saying that, hey, listen, it was time for us to leave. Uh, obviously, he took some admission of guilt in terms of, you know, he didn't think this would escalate as quickly as it did. Weeks prior, he'd given a press conference saying that, you know, this would this would not escalate to the levels of Vietnam. We wouldn't have people rushing airports or, you know, trying to climb on the tops of roofs to escape. And then weeks pass and we actually have that happen in the streets of Kabul and at the airport of Kabul. We've seen those images. Um, they're, they're horrific of people trying to climb the sides of planes uh, and jumping to their death as the plane took off. So um, it is tragic what's happening there. But even more tragic is the layers that are involved in this and the 20 plus year history of presidents uh, in, from the United States intervening in that area, troops in that area, withdrawal of troops, which is what led to this. Give me just some quick thoughts, uh, obviously, because it's going to funnel into our episode for today. But give me some quick thoughts on on Afghanistan when you heard President Biden last week speak and you've seen everything unfolding. Well, the best way I can summarize it is, you know, a friend of ours, um, her husband had served you know, in, um, in Afghanistan. And, you know, we were texting about this, um, you know, over the weekend last week. And I just said, like, was he at all surprised? And her response was not at all. And I was very quickly reminded of a really fantastic book I would recommend to anyone. And I feel like you and I recommend a lot of good books on the show, The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, which uh, breaks down the Vietnam War. And, I, and I'll make the case that what we what we're just realizing now is that Afghanistan is this gen is our generations, actually, because you and I are of that age, uh, our generations, Vietnam, um, you know, for the time we have occupied the time we have tried to establish what we considered a stable government it crumbled in three weeks um not to be tongue-in-cheek here but if any of any of you've ever played the game of risk and you get on a roll with those dice and you start taking territory that the game ends pretty quickly that's basically what you saw uh what we thought may have taken a few months maybe half a year a year and change in three weeks the taliban swept through and have assumed power um, and now it's a question for the rest of the world. How do we how do we sit with this? Uh, the vision, the images rather that we saw in Kabul uh, tell us the the dire straits that people are having. You know, right now we are we've seen recently um, the president of France has just made it very open that the borders will be open to refugees from Afghanistan. I believe Canada is looking to this as well. Yeah, I think the um, UK, too, is doing something as well. You know, sadly, in the U.S., I think that becomes a hot button issue because I think the Stephen Millers of the world will use this as, you know, neo-Nazi fodder. Yeah, I said it, neo-Nazi fodder. Um, so it's a it's sad. Honestly, it's sad that 
there are people still there um, that are so desperate to leave. And that just tells you everything. You you see people rushing an airport like that as a new regime comes into power. Um, it tells you everything. And, and Mike, I think about uh, the, the historical parallel, not quite on the same level. Uh, I think about what you and I've talked about, you know, what we've seen, you know, you being a uh, part, you know, part Cuban, um, you know, people's desperation to leave. And that I don't have anyone here has recently heard Dan Lebitard talk about this, you know, just people and just and rafts just trying to get out, you know, and just by water from, from Cuba to, to Miami, you know, from Afghanistan to anywhere else in the hell in the world, because where they are right now is a truly nightmarish situation. So, you know, that's all I'm left with is sadness and frustration for 20 years. We couldn't figure this out. And it's not this president who stands to be blamed for this. That seems to be the very easy and very uh, intellectually dishonest answer here. But we've, we've lived through multiple administrations that more often than not probably kick this situation on down the curb because they didn't want to deal with it. Um, and history tells us this is not the first time similar to Vietnam. You know, the French couldn't get it right. We had no business there. Um, you know, with Afghanistan prior to the United States, Russia had a, had a relationship an occupied relationship there that failed previous to that great Britain. Um, predominantly white countries need to get right with the fact that there are just places of the world that you are not welcome that you will truly not understand. And that's exactly what we just saw play out here. And sadly, the people there are left to be under the re, under a regime that is not exactly Al-Qaeda, but not necess- not at all a, a administration or a regime or any kind of government that I, I personally would want to live under. So that's, yeah. that's where I am with all of it. Yeah. Another uh, book I would recommend people read is Ghost Wars by Steve Call, which is you know about the secret history of the, the CIA and Afghanistan and, and bin Laden. Um, that's another good book that, that I know uh, a few people have recommended. I believe you've also recommended that book to me, Nick. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, like, I don't want to pretend to be an expert in Afghanistan. We've seen that a lot popping up on Twitter. And that's one of the worst things that I hate seeing. And that's why we started this show from an informative educational standpoint, bring somebody on the program that not only has been covering this, has been in the region, but you know, works for one of the major networks that is really covering this 24-7 and, and entrenching it from Al Jazeera. So more on that will be coming up in the coming weeks. I, I uh, echo a lot of what you say. Um, obviously, it's very easy to point to President Biden um, carrying over uh, you know, a Trump policy from the previous administration saying, hey, we, we need to get out. Trump obviously wanted to get out by May of 2020, uh, 2021, excuse me. And I think, you know, Biden pushed that to September of this year. There's failures everywhere. We go back years, obviously, and why we were even there in the first place. We're going to get into all of that in the coming weeks. But it's funny that Afghanistan, uh, not funny, actually, it's it, these issues like Afghanistan, foreign policy issues, specifically like Israel, is kind of the subject for our episode today, because topics tend to shape, you know, political polling. Uh, Nick, when you look at polling overall, over specifically since, since 2016, when Donald Trump obviously defied a lot of you know the polling data that was coming in and won the the presidency, to what you're seeing now, two years past, like how do you interpret polling data? Like how have you always looked at it? Yeah, um, I I mean the first thing I always stress is where are where's a polling where's a poll come from? Um, you know how many people are being asked? You know, it's very manipulative to say, you know, 75% of people hold say so and so. Well, if you only talk to, you know, four people and three people said that, then there's your number. Um, 
So I first would ever ask people to find out how many people were asked these questions. Uh, where was this done? I think demographic demographics matter. Um, be aware of just plus plus and minus. You know what is the potential differential? I mean, basic statistics, but nothing too in depth. I think the average person can't just pick up and just be be careful to to analyze. Donald Trump's a, a fascinating figure because I think there's still a there's still something about that presidency, or at least the um, the candidacy that you know, for some of us just kind of keep our head in the sand, like myself, it's like, that does, this doesn't make sense. You know, there's no reason why you would vote for someone like that. Um, whether you're conservative or far right or whatever, but, but there's people that, that kind of messaging appeal to. And those people, I don't think were the ones that polling data connected with, you know, in 2016 and possibly even in 2020. So first thing I would say, the short answer to your question is, to be, not be skeptical, but ask a lot of questions. We're super excited that Harry's going to be able to join us because he's going to be able to break it all down for us. Specifically, you know, what what does polling look like to him? You know, like what what are the numbers tell him? What if what if trends told him over years and times? You know, there's key Senate races, uh, key House races that are coming up in 2022 in the midterms. What does he forecast for some of that? What is the polling telling him? And then Harry's been spending a lot of time on the COVID data. So we're going to really get into what the COVID data looks like. All of that coming up with Harry Anton after the break. Nick, today's episode of the pod is presented by HelloFresh. I love HelloFresh, by the way, um, because if you, Nick, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you are stuck in a dinner rut? Hell yeah. Well, expand on that because hell yeah, I don't know what that means. Like, well, you asked a, you asked a close question. <laughs> like, what'd you eat? What'd you eat for dinner today? Well, today today was pizza day, man. We just we actually See, just you know made some pizza around here. But yeah, no, we followed this rut all time. I've got two little ones, so you got to account for them. My mother in law right. lives with us, and her tastes are sometimes a little different than Laura and I. So you got to think about things that are quick, things ready to go. And yeah. man, that's where HelloFresh comes in. I mean, that sounds like a dinner rut. Uh, you just uh, look with HelloFresh, you're going to get fresh pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. My wife and I tried HelloFresh up here in New York. We love it. Um, skip all those trips to the grocery store because in New York, you know, you got small refrigerators, you got small cabinet space. I can't go to the grocery store and keep all this stuff. So I got to rely on HelloFresh um, to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Nick, you can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less, which gives you time to be late to hop onto this podcast and record with me like you always are. That's right. That's right. I'm calling you out in this. this, My man, Aaron, out the laundry seat. And and what Mike doesn't know, though, is that Laura and I have gone through every meal service. We've done done them all. And HelloFresh has been by far our favorite one because to Mike's point, that prep time is real. 30 minutes, you're going to get some quality stuff on the table for your family. It's true. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All the recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Go to the link right now in our show notes, whatever audio podcast platform you listen to us on, you're going to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. That's amazing. Uh, 
eighty. Let me read it again. Uh, eighty dollars off. Eighty bucks. Shipping on HelloFresh. Man, it's like a PS Five game plus ten dollars. <laughs> I mean, only you know that math. I don't. I literally don't know that math, folks. If you can, if you can add up whatever PS Four games equate to eighty dollars. PS Five. My man was paying attention. Oh, exactly. <laughs> PS Five. That's how. That's how bad I don't know it. HelloFresh. You can clip all that out. HelloFresh. Um, eighty dollars off, including free shipping. Head to the audio, audio podcast platform. Show notes right there. Click on the link. HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. All right, like we mentioned, this guy, I, I love this guy. Um, I just met him six seconds ago, but I love him because- Love, love uh, at first sound. Right, love at first sound. I would, I would agree with that. Um, he's a senior data reporter over at CNN. You can check out all of his work at CNN.com. He just, just did a great article about the 2020 census, and that is Harry Enton. Harry, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Shalom, gentlemen. It's uh, my pleasure. You know, the truth is, is it gets me away from my actual life and anything that gets me away from that, I'm happy to do. (laughs) I I agree with that sentiment. I think Nick would as well as both of us have four kids. So I I would agree with that. Um, Harry, let's get into it because I wanted to bring you on the program. We wanted to talk about polling as a science, but also have you break down some different things that we've been seeing in the news lately. Obviously, there's people up for re-election in 2022 from key Senate races. We've got the article I just mentioned that you did for the census. Um, Talk to me a little bit about polling as a science. Like what, explain to us how polling works. The only thing I can equate it to is I work in the field of technology from a product standpoint, we do user research, right? And so we bring in focus groups and we do, you know, uh, questionnaires for them to fill out and kind of guide the direction of how we want to steal their product. Is polling something similar? Like, what's a misconception that people don't understand about polling in general? No, I, th- I think you got it right. You know, it, what you're doing is a type of survey. What we think of as polling in the world in which I'm in um, is basically, you know, understanding what Americans feel. You're looking at, you know, how potential users of your product feel. Um, and we're looking how Americans feel or how individuals in a certain state or district or city feel. Uh, What I think is important to recognize is that if a poll is done correctly, I think there are two things. Number one, it should be illustrative of the audience of which you're trying to tell a story about. But second, uh, polling is a tool. It's, you know, it's not Nostradamus who's sitting here. It's not something that's going to be perfect. Uh, If you have, you know, I think a lot of people think about polling in terms of political races, but we can also do issue polling say how people feel about X, Y, or Z, but we'll we'll stick with the political race for a second. Uh, If the poll says that one candidate's at 51% and one candidate's at 49%, that's a race that is too close to call. Uh, I think that a lot of people look at polls to be pinpoint perfect. That's not what polls are. Uh, And more than that, uh, unlike with say, uh, perhaps viewpoints about how Americans feel about an issue at large, there is additional errors uh, with concern to election polling of trying to figure out who's going to vote. And that's not necessarily always the easiest thing to do. So, you know, look, I think to sum up my answer, polls are tools. They are not perfect. They'll tell you if a race is going to be close versus a blowout. But anyone who's looking for more beyond that, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, you're probably relying on polling perhaps a, a wee bit too much. All right. Have you found the polls, the exit, exit polling specifically? We think about 2016, 2020. 
do are there any trends that you're you are all noticing in terms of are people remaining to be truthful is there some things that are maybe not people are not as forthcoming just with their political preferences I, I think what you have seen, I mean, look, if you look at both 2016, 2020, take away the exit polling for a second, but in terms of the truth, I, I, I think there is no doubt, if you look at what happened in both of those years, uh, that Republican candidates were underestimated across the board. I think the question is why were Republican candidates underestimated across the board? Was it because the people who were responding to the surveys not being truthful? Or was it the case that the people who were responding to the surveys not representative of the electorate at large. And I believe based upon all the information that we have, it's the latter, it's not the former. It's that for whatever reason, the people that we are getting to take these surveys are not representative of the electorates that we believe that we're trying to understand. Uh, And we know that, for instance, that it does seem that the errors are correlated with places where there are a lot of white voters without college degrees. So the errors have tended to be worse in places, say like Wisconsin, or say like Michigan, or perhaps not um, spoken about as much because the race isn't ever close there, except maybe a Senate race in 2018. How about West Virginia? Uh, That I think is a key giveaway, right? Uh, If you look at the polling in 2020, you know, look, Donald Trump is gonna win the state of West Virginia, but no, real polls, certainly the average didn't have it anywhere close to the near 40 point margin by which he won by. And so when we're talking about the polling errors, I think what we have is a group of people, either A, who are newly not answering the polls, which would be interesting, or B, had never really answered the polls before, but because of the trends that we've seen in the way different groups of voters are choosing their candidates, that used to not be a problem and now is, only because of the new coalitions that we're seeing in the electorate. Harry, you wrote an article, like I just alluded to before, about um, the census in 2020 and how the U.S. as a country is diversifying a little bit more, right? And getting older. Um, You wrote uh, white non-Hispanic Americans now make up less than 60% of the population, about 50% if you count Puerto Rico. I am Puerto Rican. Um, So when you see numbers like that, right? uh, You have a lot of numbers in this article, but what, as a campaign or as a strategist, how do they use that polling data? Take us inside what the census means overall and and how a campaign will use it, because we're going to get into some of the key gubernatorial races, the Senate races in in a bit. But how does a campaign use some of that data? Well, I I, I think, you know, in terms of what this really means overall, you kind of hit on it, right? Which is that we are a country that's diversifying as well as getting older. Adults are making up a larger share of the population that is 18 year old plus than they really have. Certainly during my lifetime, if you go back to the 2000 census, you know, you've essentially seen that each year or each every 10 years, uh, those 18 and older make up two percentage points more of Americans overall as the birth rate has been falling. And certainly with COVID, the birth rate has been falling even more over the last uh, few years, unfortunately. Um, and what that probably means in terms of elections is, you know, is something that I said in the article. You know, I think people hear about diversify, a diversifying country and they therefore think, oh, okay, this is good for Democrats because Democrats tend to do well with people of color. Um, they do their best with African-Americans, then they do their second best with Asian-Americans, then they do very well with Hispanics. Um, and therefore Democrats are gonna do very well. This was a theory 
or a thesis that was um, sort of brought to the forefront in the beginning of the century, which sort of said that Democrats would not be on easy street, but would be in very strong position. Here's the issue. Uh, and this has to do with how campaigns deal with this overall. Either A or one, um, campaigns, Republican campaigns, if that's the case, need to have greater outreach to people of color. Or B, it could be the case that they try and run up the score of white voters. Um, and we have seen white voters as a group vote more and more Republican uh, compared to the baseline of the nation for the most part over the last uh, 30 years. So that has sort of put a blunt to the instrument um, that perhaps Democrats would gain. Or B, which is something that's very much been interesting to me, um, is that, you know, we don't really, I don't know if it's been spoken about nearly as much, uh, but the reason Joe Biden won was because he did seven points better with white males than Hillary Clinton did. If you look at all other voters in the electorate, he in fact did a point worse than Hillary Clinton did. Uh, Joe, uh, Donald Trump vastly outperformed his two, or at least outperformed, vastly might be a strong word, but outperformed his standing in 2020 among people of color compared to his 2016 performance. So I, I tend to be very, very cautious in reading too much into what the census necessarily means for future results. But I do understand that I think people should understand that campaigns need to change. And, you know, inside an individual campaign, you know, this year versus two years from now, you know, look, they're going to be, they're going to mostly be running the same campaigns that they have, right? These are more glacial changes than they are immediate changes. Um, but in terms of campaigns over the long term, what I think you're going to be seeing is what you generally see in a state like Florida, right? You saw that Rick Scott um, and Ron DeSantis ran campaigns in which there was real outreach to Hispanics. Now, Florida has, an, has a differing Hispanic population than the country as a whole, insofar as you know, Cubans make up a large portion of it, much more so than they do as the nation as a whole. But Donald Trump also did better with Puerto Ricans in and around Orange County, Orlando, than he did four years ago. Uh, so look, I, I think that you're going to be seeing different Republicans run different campaigns as the country starts to look perhaps more like Florida and Texas than it does like Wisconsin and Michigan. But these are glacial changes taking over, taking over the long term. They're not things that will be impacting elections just yet. You know, on that subject, uh, another piece you recently wrote about Democrats um, that what I guess we would consider mainstream or Biden Democrats are still overwhelmingly favored. I think your number had it at like 90 percent um, among Democrats in terms of political messaging. That, what is that then potentially saying to to justice Democrats, members of the squad and, you know, in the Congress made up of you know folks like uh, Congresswoman Cortez about possibly veering too far to the left or too far off message from where moderate Democrats are are doing overwhelmingly better uh, among Democratic voters. I partly asked this also because you just mentioned about white voters and the ability to possibly pull back that number a little bit from uh, former President Trump. Yeah, and it's to be clear what it is, is Joe Biden's approval rating among Democrats, at least before anything that happened in Afghanistan was somewhere between 90 and 95 percent. Uh, and that's a strong number. His numbers with Democrats have been stronger than Donald Trump's numbers were with Republicans. And Trump supposedly had this great grasp over uh, re Republicans. Joe Biden's grip on Democrats, if anything, is stronger. I, 
you know, that article and just the general idea behind it um, is that I think that the media tries to learn the lessons from the Republican Party and then apply them to the Democratic Party. And in some ways, they can be sort of applied, right? Yes, the Republican Party, more Republicans identify conservative now than did 20 years ago. Yes, it's true. More Democrats identify as liberal now or very liberal than did 20 years ago. But there's a difference between changes and levels. And what I mean by that is that even if liberals make up a larger portion of Democratic voters than they did 20 years ago, they are still, at least according to most polling, there's some you can find where it differs, they are still a minority of the Democratic electorate. And what that essentially means is that, yeah, you, sh- you shouldn't be surprised if you see uh, an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or a Jabal Bowman or, um, say, a Rashida Tlaib elected um, in very blue districts. But in terms of the overall Democratic electorate, on the whole, they're going to be more inclined to vote for people who are more mainstream or more moderate than those who are very liberal. I'll add one other little thing here, though which is sometimes ideology can get overplayed. So on the Republican side, Donald Trump, Donald Trump was a lot of things, but most voters, at least when he won the nomination in 2016, were far more likely to think of him as moderate than they thought of, say, Ted Cruz. They thought Ted Cruz was the quote unquote, was very, very conservative. Some might say the true conservative, but they were willing to go with Trump because they saw beyond ideology. They saw something different. And What's important to recognize is I think you can be very liberal and probably win any primary in the country, but I don't think you can be very liberal and be seen as against the Democratic Party and win any prime win anywhere a primary in the country. Harry, um, you fed into a great follow up because you mentioned a couple of things there about specifically Afghanistan. Uh, Earlier in the year, we saw something with Israel and Palestine, obviously. And so foreign policy issues, issues at hand. How does that affect polling? Like explain to people where um, there's a race coming up, let's say in six months, obviously we have the midterms coming up next year. Um, How do issues like foreign policy action or inaction by a president, how does that affect polling data that you've seen over the years that you've been doing this? Uh, It can, it can, it can, and it cannot. So let's use an example where it did. Uh, the 2006 midterms, I think two th- the 2006 midterms kind of almost get stuck in between 2004, which was seen as more of the war on terrorism election, although Iraq was playing some role in it in 2008, which obviously took um, part with a background of the financial crisis. If you look back at 2006, George W. Bush's handling of the Iraq war, along with some corruption scandals that were occurring in Congress, were the two big issues. And there was a major backlash to Bush's handling of the Iraq war at that particular point. And I believe it was sort of the gasoline that got the Democrats motor going and helped them achieve both the majority in the House and in the Senate. So that's an example where foreign policy can play a major role in an election. Now, though, I want to take a step back and point out that just because something momentarily may or may not have an impact it doesn't necessarily mean they'll have an impact a year from now. Uh, There's a great clip on YouTube, which I believe is, um, the title of it is Fred Barnes was wrong. Uh, Fred Barnes, a conservative writer, smart guy, um, used to do a Fox News show. 
um, with more Kondraki on uh, Fox News. I think it was the Beltway Boys. Uh, in any event, the, the, the theme of the clip was that this was right around the time of the Persian Gulf War in 1991. And the George H.W. Bush looked like he was going to, you know, the, the American army is going to roll through, complete its mission. Everything was going to be A-OK -okay for the U.S. And Fred Barnes essentially said, number one, by winning this war, George H.W. Bush has guaranteed himself re-election. And two, by doing so well, he's guaranteed that Pat Buchanan is not going to run against George H.W. Bush in the Republican primary next year. Well, uh, with the um, virtue or the luckiness of hindsight, I can tell you, one, that Pat Buchanan absolutely ran against George H.W. Bush in the 1992 Republican primary. And two, just because uh, George H.W. Bush was viewed as being quite good in his performance as commander in chief in the first Persian Gulf War. It didn't mean that um, he would win re-election against Bill Clinton. He lost it. So it's completely plausible, one, that we could see some major changes um, in the polling, uh, at least with regard to uh, Biden's um, people's views on Biden in Afghanistan. But two, even if we do, there's no guarantee that a year and a half from now or even a year from now, it will have any real impact on the polls. Yeah, actually, on that subject of, of Afghanistan, actually, to your um, as you're saying that, Harry, that got me thinking about, um, yeah, in terms of like, how do you maintain, how does this maintain to be an issue a year from now in terms of the, even more so over a year from now in terms of the midterms? But does the mood of the country change, though, and just from what you're seeing that? It seems to be we're very early in our reaction, but it seems to, it appears to be that um, the president's handling of it. And again, to be honest, like, I don't know what way you do handle this better, but seems to have obviously been a negative response. Is that something that you're all seeing early on or is this maybe more of potentially a bigger deal? But the numbers are telling us that, like, this isn't a sustainable bump up or down for the president. Um, well, Twitter certainly thinks it's a big deal. That's for sure. Uh, never wrong. Never wrong. Twitter is never wrong. Oh, you know, if uh, if oh, if only it were, it would be my, make my life so much easier. Uh, look, one, it's very early days yet. There is some preliminary data to suggest that people are not loving the way that President Biden is handling this. Uh, let's give it a few days and we'll get a little bit further along and we'll see. Um, certainly going into it, most people did want to pull out. But of course, something in the hypothetical theoretical world and then actually seeing how things actually unfold the two very different things. So we'll see on that too. Um, you know, I will point out that at least when it came to Gerald Ford and us pulling out of Vietnam in the fall of Saigon back in the mid seventies, um, people weren't necessarily in love with how, how that all went down, but they didn't really blame Ford and his approval really didn't take much of a hit. But of course that's a sample size of one. Uh, there is absolutely the ability that uh, this could change viewpoints on Biden, at least momentarily. Uh, and I'll point out that, you know, we're right now in a very weird part of the news cycle where COVID is not as big of an issue as it once was. It was coming back. Crime has sort of receded. I think there was this idea that there was this crime surge at the beginning of the summer. We aren't really talking about that anymore. Uh, and it's generally been a fairly boring cycle in terms of the news. There hasn't been anything that's really popped recently. So that's the type of environment in which an issue such as this could manifest itself and take control. And the other thing I'll note, if nothing else, 
more people are searching about Afghanistan on Twitter right now than really have in like the last four or five years. Uh, we know that. So that's an early indicator that something might be up, but we'll have to see how exactly, how much that penetrates with the public. And even if people are taking it in, whether or not that A, changes their minds about Afghanistan, although I think it probably does a little bit based on the preliminary data, and B, whether that changes their minds about Biden, that remains to be seen. Harry, I wanted to ask you, um, there's 34 Senate seats up in the 2022 midterms. Uh, obviously, we know five senators from the Republican side have all announced that they're going to retire at the end of their terms. There's a couple of key gubernatorial races coming up. Obviously, Greg Abbott in Texas. Um, um, we, we see what's happening with Governor Newsom in California. Um, without going into each race individually and stuff like that, what's the early polling kind of showing in terms of some of these Senate races? Because everyone's talking about the makeup of the House and the Senate in 2022 is so vital, specifically for President Biden to get some of his agenda passed through. So where do you see some of these races kind of shaking out? What's some of the polling that you've been looking at that is kind of giving you a good indication of this could be the trend for Democrats to win some of these seats and flip or Republicans to win some of these seats? I'll say this much before I even get into the polling. Uh, if you are not betting on the Republicans to take back the House, unless you're getting some really good odds, you're making a poor bet. Uh, you know, go back since the Civil War, uh, there have been three examples, I believe, in which the opposition party has not gained seats. Uh, 1934, 1998, and 2002. Uh, there's nothing really so far to me to indicate for sure that we're going in a different direction than that. Uh, and Republicans may just pick up all the seats they need to in the House just based on redistricting alone. Uh, and obviously, we'll be seeing those lines redrawn according to the population shifts um, as we were talking about the census earlier. Uh, in terms of the Senate, Look, it's early. Uh, you know, if the House falls victim or benefits from the law of um, large sample sizes and averages, the Senate, you know, doesn't. It, it, there's less than one tenth as many races, uh, and things can definitely shift and be interesting there. Uh, Democrats have not had so much of a recruiting problem, at least as I've seen. You know, in a state like Pennsylvania, they've had a slew of people sort of jump into the race uh, for that Pennsylvania. Senate seat of the retiring Pat Toomey. Uh, you know, I, I, I think in terms of the early polling right now, it's basically neutral. Um, but historically, over the long term, what we do see is that races tend to fall away from the party in power. So, you know, if you were to look at the early generic ballot polling, which gives you sort of the generic ballots, this question, uh, if the race for Congress is occurring today, would you vote for the Democrat or Republican candidate? Uh, they ask this nationally. If you look over the long term, what you generally see is that that ballot measure or that measure on a poll um, tends to float away from the White House party and towards the opposition party. Uh, we've we saw that in 2018. We saw that in the 2010 cycle, for example. Uh, we saw it in the 2014 cycle, for example. Um, so the overarching view would be that there's so far nothing that dissuades me from that, even in the Senate. Um, but in terms of the polling, there has not been a lot on the individual uh, race levels. It tends to confirm what I think you and your listeners might think, which is essentially that, you know, Democrats will probably be competitive in Pennsylvania. They probably will be competitive in Wisconsin uh, if the 
current numbers are any indicator of what's going on. They have a chance. There is a legitimate chance that they could, in fact, build on their majority in the Senate. This is the right sort of map for them to be able to do so. This is the 2016 map uh, where, you know, Democrats probably underperformed. This is not a bad map for them. Um, I would think that they would have a decent shot of doing some stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean a hell heck of a lot. I've seen poor maps turn into great maps based on um, the overarching political trends, and I've seen um, the reverse as well. How you something you'd re- written recently about COVID and the the role of fear? You know, just pivoting our conversation to what what the data is now telling us about our response to COVID. Um, and your breakdown of it kind of talk, talks about just for the unvaccinated, sort of the portions of people who are never going to get vaccinated. Unfortunately, just uh, editorializing here for myself only. Um, but then those that might need the push. Can you elaborate just on the role of the role of fear and potential other factors that may start to shift the percentages of people as we're looking to to keep increasing the um, numbers for people getting vaccinated? Sure. And I'll say, you know, I really try to be unbiased about a lot of things, but I am not unbiased when it comes to vaccinations. Um, I believe every single person should get that gosh darn vaccine with very, Amen. very few exceptions. Um, Harry, we're with you on that. Uh, everybody on this show is vaccinated, so thank, we're with you on that. Thank goodness. Um, and I, I, I hear some of the excuses from some people, and I, I can't quite understand. It's a miracle that we have these, a scientific miracle, and et cetera. Look, I think one thing I should point out, you know, is that we haven't vaccinated a lot of adults. You know, nearly three quarters of the population has been vaccinated. That's that's good. It's not as high as I want. Obviously, I would like it to be 100%. But, you know, in terms of the unvaccinated and fear, I, I, you know, fear comes in two separate ways. And that was what the article was saying. One, fear is fear of getting sick. We know that a lot of people who have not gotten the vaccine at least claim that the reason they have not gotten the vaccine is because they believe that the vaccine uh, is worse than the than COVID itself, which is complete garbage. Uh, the vaccine is very, very safe. Um, there are obviously side effects, but there are minor side effects for the large part. Um, two, we know that when uh, cases have risen in certain states, that people have been more likely to get vaccinated in those states versus the baseline. Uh, so that's a, you know part of fear. Fear of getting sick all of a sudden makes you go get the vaccine. Uh, three, you know, which was the extra component to this, and I can't claim credit to this. This I think was actually a producer who put the idea in my head, but it works. Uh, is that fear of loss, generally speaking, drives get people to get the vaccine. So vaccine mandates um, drive people to get the vaccine. There'll be a lot of people who complain about vaccine mandates. Politically, they are risky, but in terms of actual things that drive people to get the vaccine, about half of American workers who say at this point that they are unvaccinated, say they will get vaccinated if there's a vaccine mandate that forces them at their job. That's an incredibly large number of folks, given right now, you know, if we're at 72, 73% and half of workers get it, that's going to boost our number 80, 85%, depending on how exactly you define worker. Uh, so fear works. And the other thing I'll no- note is I do think that full FDA approval, which is not fear itself, although can help lower fear, a full FDA approval combined with vaccine mandates, I think are two ways in which we could get a lot more people vaccinated very, very quickly. 
Harry, great insight. Uh, I encourage a lot of people right now, go to CNN.com, check out that latest article that Harry wrote. Uh, he does fantastic work. He says titles don't mean anything to him. So I'm going to say senior analyst of everything in general. Um, Harry Anton, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. We truly appreciate it. My pleasure. And as I said, anything to get me away from my everyday life. <laughs> thank you, Harry. Thank you. Nick, today's episode of the podcast is presented by the good folks at DB Journey. It's a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. How fitting, Nick. We just did a travel episode with a, with a correspondent talking about whether or not you should be traveling and if you do, where you go to. But DB Journey is the only luggage you need, award-winning luggage, Nick. Are you going, you, you've been to DB before? I have been, man. Look, I don't know for any of you people that are traveling with kids and it doesn't even have to be a serious travel, but like, I mean, I was down in Delaware with some friends and my family recently, you know, and DB stuff's helpful because you, you got to be able to have things attached. I don't, again, That's if you right. travel with kids, it's the little things like where's the snack bag and the diaper bag and all kinds of stuff. You know, DB is great because you get a chance to just kind of just have those things attached. It just makes it simple. You don't have to worry about bigger bags and all that nonsense. Just you know, just think utility, think, you know, think efficiency. And that's, that's where, that's where DB comes in. Boy, they're going to love that. You said that because with DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, and tote from the streets to the peaks. DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. We're teaming up with them. So exclusively right now for our listeners, whatever audio podcast platform you're listening to, there's a link in the show notes there. Click on it. Enter the promo code when you're done at checkout, buying whatever you want to buy, as Nick mentioned. You put the promo, promo code POD10, and you're going to get 10% off your next purchase. All right, Nick? 10% off, okay? You can't use it, though, Nick. All right? That, actually, you know what? You can use it. You can use 10%. Right, there you go. There you go. All right. POD10 at checkout. DB Journey. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. That was uh, Harry Enten, like I mentioned, a CNN senior data reporter, senior political writer. He does it all over there. But one of the things I love about Harry is, and there's a famous line, uh, men lie, women lie, numbers don't, right? Harry deals with numbers, data. It's currently what I work in right now, you know, in my, in my current day job. This is not my day job, folks. For those, for those of you that are listening and tuning in, think that this is our day job. These are not. But um, the data sometimes can be misconstrued. It can be steered in different directions to fit a narrative. But at the end of the day, numbers don't lie. And, you know, Harry gave you some great insight there into ter in terms of what polling as a science looks like, what it helps shift narratives wise, what it tells you, the early, the exit polls, early polling data. Um, and then I, I thought some of that stuff was interesting too about, about the COVID data that you asked him there towards the end, Nick, because he, a lot of his focus, and he told us this off air, a lot of his focus recently has been on the COVID data, right? And in terms of the vaccination rates and the unvaccinated. Um, so Nick, uh, your takeaways about polling overall as a science, how it's used uh, in the political realm and, and Harry, obviously, overall. Well, first, I think first to stress, like we do with any expert that we bring on the show is you understand the science of what they do. Um, and Harry's specialty is in polling, specifically in data. And one thing that he brings up that I think it's important that we all come back to is just understand what these numbers mean. 
you know, sometimes when you're talking about not you, I mean, people in general, when we're looking at, you know, news uh, broadcasts, you know, when polling day is coming in, it's important that you have those little numbers at the bottom that tell you how many people actually were asked these questions and looking at plus minus, you know, Harry's an expert at interpreting that and being able to tell us a story that's, that's very data rich, um, but leaves very little room for interpretation in the sense of like the numbers are telling you this. And it's funny, as you were mentioning that quote, um, you know, the, the counter I always think of is, I think, from former um, vice president or former vice president to Richard Nixon, um, Spiro Agnew. You know, there are three kinds of lies. You know, it's lies, damn lies and statistics. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we know how that ended for Spiro. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why he said it. But um, but yeah, I, you know, Harry, that's what Harry does. So it was a good conversation, I think you know, talking about what we're seeing on the COVID side, you know, what we may see in elements of COVID fatigue. But I think, as we talked about on the show, that recent piece about the role of fear, and you and I have talked offline about, you know, what are the other incentives, you know, as a, as a country, we tend to think about shifting behavior from an incentive model, behavioral economics, really, which is what works really well in the US, smoking being maybe one of the most famous examples of it. But, you know, Harry's piece talks about what is the role of fear. And we're, te- we're seeing this in the form of vaccine mandates, specifically in the workplace. You know, it is funny, you know, everyone has, you know, those anti-vaxxers can say all they want, but suddenly when it affects their paycheck, they seem to walk a different, they seem to sing a different tune, which does call into question how, how down for the cause were they really in the first place? Right. I have seen some of that personally play out in my life. So it's pretty funny that you mentioned that. Um, one of the takeaways that I, uh, I took away from Harry, the thing that he mentioned about if you're not betting money on Republicans to win some seats, specifically in the House, maybe even in the Senate, um, then you'd be a fool. Because like he mentioned, um, the, the historical data trends point to this time right now, uh, the, the Republicans winning some seats. I just thought that was really interesting because here's a guy looking at the historical um, view of all of the numbers from previous years and the trends. And that's really what polling does um, looking at statistical trends, obviously, he mentioned a questionnaire that they asked, like in some of these. So Harry was fantastic, man. He's been doing this for, for so long. I mentioned he was at 538. Now he's over at CNN. So check out Harry's work online at CNN.com. Go ahead, Nick. Well, yeah. One thing I'll bring up, though, is, you know, the other part of this, the other House of Congress, of course, is the Senate. And Harry's reaction was really important to note that, you know, the way things are shaking up right now. And he mentioned Pennsylvania. And I can speak now as a you know person who lives in Pennsylvania and recently seeing Congressman Condor Lamb uh, throw his hat in the ring as well for Pat Toomey's seat, um, is that the Senate suddenly becomes in play. Currently, obviously, it's a 50-50 split, but Democrats have an opportunity to pick up seats there um, on the flips of potentially losing um, congressional seats. So we may be walking into deadlock or into gridlock, but, um, but yeah, the Senate reaction also stood out to me too, because that's been it's been very much on the fence of where Democrats could fall into that. Right. Um, but the congressional, yeah, the congressional house statistics do, do hold up historically. Interesting to see what, what's going to happen in the midterms. Either way, go out there, exercise your right to vote. That's always important. Uh, speaking of important, this show is important. YouTube.com. Please subscribe on YouTube.com. You want to watch all the video clips of some of the interviews that we've done on this program, audio podcast platforms, you know them by now. Please rate us, subscribe, review, leave a five-star review and comment. Please, Nick's putting up a five, dude. Don't don't get this guy started. He's gonna he's gonna give you the, give you the smoke. I don't know what that means, but he's gonna give you the smoke, folks. Um, as always, I'm Mike Leon. Always looking for a five-star review and 
nothing less. I'm Nick Saveri. Thank you so much, everybody. We truly appreciate it. And we'll see you all next time. The polling shows this show was good. It is. Later. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.